This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it up. We uh, have been working our way through this book, this letter from Paul to this church in Corinth. If you're a guest, there's so much, there's so much history about this church, uh, and so we'll encourage you to go back and listen to the other 28 messages. Uh, it's hard to believe we've been at this that long, and yet it's a joy to be able to kind of take our time and work through an entire book of the Bible. But today, we're, we're at a passage that is not new to you. In fact, what I'd like to do, since we're in 1 Corinthians 13, is I think, I think it might be a good idea if we simply read the passage, it's not all that big, we're going to read it together. And so uh, if you're willing to help us do that, I'm going to invite you to stand and uh, go ahead and stand. And we're going to read this entire 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians together. It's, he starts basically in the last part of chapter 12, and so we'll start there. And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the wisdom behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So, now that we've remembered, reminded ourselves what's here in this passage, we've got to admit that this is perhaps one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible. 
In fact, it's familiar not just among Christians, but even non-believers. It's everywhere. It's, it shows up at virtually every wedding that you've ever been at. You may have said these words, or some of these words, to the person that you married. It's in every Hallmark card. <laughs> every tearjerker movie. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere in our culture. Now, let me ask you, do you think that makes it easier for us to learn what it says or harder? <laughs> yeah, sure. We, we're, we're Americans, so we're suspect anyway, right? There's, there's a chance that it doesn't help us. And that would be true of us as well. You see, whatever we've come to think parts of these passages mean, let's make sure that we understand what Paul's writing, especially in context. Isn't it funny that this t delightfully romantic passage would be found right smack dab in the middle of Paul's letter to a disobedient church? Not exactly where you would expect to find it. So, I guess, I guess we could imagine someone talking to the people at Corinth and, and saying, what is wrong with your church? What is up with you guys? What's wrong with your church? Are you short on volunteers? The preaching is poor. Yeah. Uh, your building stinks. That's terrible. You don't even have a building. Well, of course, what kind of a church doesn't have a building? Uh, Oh, the, maybe maybe the, the giving isn't good. What's wrong with your church? No, all those things are great. What's wrong with your church is that you don't love. Oh, is that all? <laughs> all right. See, we would tend to see that as a second-tier issue. Paul's going to say exactly the opposite. Now, there's three sections to this chapter, I think. And, and so that you find those in your notes, if you've got this little note insert in your, in your bulletin. We're going to take it one section at a time. The first section I would, I've titled the, the fact that love is enriching. Love is enriching. So he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have faith, I can move mountains but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, if I give my body over to hardship, that I may boast. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this I, I could help you with. First of all, you, if, if you were to kind of write this out on a piece of paper, you, you've got these if, if I do this, if I have that, if I have that. And uh, that was just a very common poetic literary form. There's a name for it. None of you care. Which I, neither do I, but, but it was interesting to notice that, that the Corinthians would have probably recognized, I, I see what he, this is poetry for the sake of giving it power. And they would have seen the same thing. Paul uses, he mentions a couple of gifts here. I, you notice he doesn't mention all of them. So he mentions a few, probably because they stand as examples. He's not going to go through every one in all those lists that he gave earlier. He gives a few examples. Although it's hard to believe that it's a coincidence that the first one he mentions is tongues, considering the Corinthians hang up with tongues. In fact, considering their hang up with loving whatever was the most spectacular and would get the most attention. 
And so I think it's not a coincidence that he started with those. But, but he talked about faith and prophecy and giving. Now, in this construction, you know, you see what he's doing. He, he takes a gift, and then he says, if I could use this gift in the ultimate expression of its power. Let's take it to its ultimate. And so tongues, if I spoke with the tongues of, of, of all men any, and of angels, ooh, how cool. Does this mean that there is an angelic language? I, I don't know if there's an angelic language, but this doesn't mean there's an angelic language. Although it does, there is some evidence to think that maybe the Corinthians thought maybe there was. And I mean, I mean after all, if you've got the gift of tongues and you're showing off at church, how do you one-up that? Well, you speak in the language of angels, of course. And, and you know, it, it's not hard to imagine that angels as beings could have a language of their own. And if they did have a language of, your, of their own, it would be extremely more exquisite than any language that we have known. That, that's actually not that hard to imagine. There are differences in languages, you know. In fact, as I was preparing, I, of course, there are Greek words that are used for the word love, agape, phileo, storge, others, eros. And I was, we were going to talk a little bit about that, and, uh, but we're not. But as I did that study, I began to realize that what's true of maybe angelic languages is even true of Greek. You realize that Greek was this rich language that, that was, we were given most of the New Testament in. Uh, I, I did a, little, a quick little Google search. You know, so there's perhaps... 1.5 million words in the English language, way over 70 million words in Greek. I thought, really? And so then I, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out if that's true. And then I said, no, I'm not. I don't care. So one Google site, if you quote me, I'm simply going to say, I, 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 that's just what one spot said. But, but it does point out the fact that if angels did have a language, it would probably be pretty impressive. That's really Paul's point. If I could have this gift and, and the, have the most enormously impressive expression of it that you can imagine. Obviously, through this entire section, he's using hyperbole. Let me, let me exaggerate this to the max for the sake of the illustration. It's, it, the beatings will stop any moment. As <laughs> soon as morale improves. Uh, <laughs> You see, they may have been inferring that they were so spiritual they could even speak angel talk. And Paul doesn't say, no, you can't. Instead, what he says is, actually, it amounts to nothing if you don't have love. He says, you know, that kind of talk, instead of being impressive, you know what it is? It's hollow. It's, Andrew, you going to help? You can help me? Okay, come up here. Okay, so it's, it's hollow. Now, he says it's like a, like a clanging cymbal, right? So we're talking, Andrew and I. So I, I don't know if you know, Andrew's an accomplished jazz pianist. And if you know anything about jazz, it's common for different instruments to kind of move through. One instrument will take the focus at a time, right? Play their little riff. They play four bars, eight bars, and then they hand it off to the bassist, you know, and he goes for a while. Then he goes to the guitarist for a while, and then the vocalist for a while. So I thought it'd be fun if Andrew and I, as both accomplished jazz musicians <laughs> share a little with you so so he and I are going to play we're going to kind of we're going to bandy back a couple of riffs um, and I'm going to play my my chosen instrument which are I know they don't look like gongs they don't do they can you see those there's you know but 
Yeah, you know, it, you will see. So, so okay, you, you, you take off, buddy, and then I'll know when I come in, and I'll, okay, and we'll kind of go back and forth. Okay, cool. Is that great or what? Yeah, he's great. Okay, thanks, man. Great job. <laughs> he, he's like, why does he embarrass me like that? So, the point I want to make sure is obvious. In a musical battle with Andrew or anybody, the gong has really nothing much to, to add. It brings very little. It doesn't enrich the experience at all. So when you're looking at a, an incredibly powerful spiritual experience, like speaking in a tongue of an angel, and if you do it for some reason other than love, all God hears is that. I'm sorry, but I would not pay money for a ticket to that concert. There's his point. It brings nothing. It adds nothing. He goes on, he goes, if I had the gift of prophecy, could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Again, hyperbole. And we could talk about what this tells us about the gift of knowledge. We don't have time today. But you see, if I could have this gift and, and understand everything, wouldn't you love for someone to explain everything? And yet, without love, God says it would produce nothing of lasting value. It's not worth getting out of bed for. By the gift of faith and could move mountains. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 17? That's not what he said. <laughs> but that's exactly why we don't have to put little reminders up about silencing your phone, because every once in a while, someone does it for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, it does make you think twice about which ringtones you choose too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's been a few. There's been a few experiences where I'm like, "That's your ringtone? You're kidding me?" Yeah. Okay. Uh, you see, the the point here is that Jesus said in Matthew 17, you know, look, if you don't understand faith, this this can be done easily. In fact. Faith is so strong. If you, if you even had a little bit of faith, you could tell a mountain to move. Because it has nothing to do with the amount of faith. It has to do with the object of the faith. But what he's saying here, he's alluding to Jesus' own words. If you could move mountains. Now, I'm sorry. This is hyperbole that we're having trouble buying. If I could move a mountain, doggone it, we'd, we'd do something pretty exciting. I don't know what yet, but, you know. Mountaintop church, I don't know. I mean, let's say, go just plop it here or whatever. I don't, <laughs> but what God's saying is from his perspective, goose egg. Really? I mean, you don't understand. We're in all the national papers. Goose egg. He goes on, he says, if I give all that I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship, it's kind of interesting. Here, this idea of the gift of giving, right? 
He says, if, if, it's not just giving. What if I gave away everything? This is some of your guys' deepest fear, right? Okay, God, I'll give a little. Please don't take everything. Of course, he gives everything. makes no sense. But what if, imagine the gift of giving where you say, I give it all. In fact, it says, now some of you know, maybe in your version it says, give my body to the flames. And we think it's martyrdom. And the truth is, the word can be used in a couple of different settings. NIV chose hardship. I think it's probably actually better in the context. But either way, you got to admit, that's a pretty extreme example of giving. If you give your body, the other idea was simply give it over to slavery. Imagine if I became an indentured servant, I sold myself to give away to the poor. Either way, it's this hyper, it's hyperbole. And he says, if I did all that, I would gain nothing. You see, love is enriching. Without it, it brings nothing. He goes on. Love is edifying, verses 4 to 7. Now, here's this wonderful passage of descriptions of what love is and isn't. Love is patient. The word here is long-suffering. That was actually the King James word. Long-suffering, long-tempered. It means it takes a while to boil. That's really what it means. It takes a while to boil. It, it, it indicates self-restraint when there's provocation. So when somebody's doing this to you, and you feel the boil burning, it's starting. But you do not give in. That's long-suffering. If you've parented toddlers, you know what this feels like. <laughs> <laughs> Love is patient. Love is kind. It means simple. It's no, no, nothing profound. Doing good. It, it, the word is used of gentle wine, smooth, doing good. If, if patience is passive, not acting, kindness is active, acting for someone, doing the right thing, it's active. Then he goes on, love is not. He says, love does not envy. Envy is nothing more than an unhealthy or an unspiritual attitude toward the success of someone else. We all have felt it. Why do they get that million-dollar Powerball? I would use it for God, some of it. It's an unhealthy response to other people's success. In the church in Corinth, what do you suppose all the end? What did they envy? Well, we kind of know, don't we? The people with the flashier gifts, the people with positions of power or leadership, the people who, who were respected and listened to by others, Whatever it was. Nobody wanted the gift of service. Nobody was impressed by giving unless you could do it in a big chunk and, and the, all the cameras were there. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes this to his protege, talking about people with this kind of sense of envy. Verse 4, he says, They are conceited, understanding nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy. Strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have robbed, who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Envy, unhealthy response to the success of others. But then he goes on. He says, love does not envy, love does not boast. 
So if envy is a response, an unhealthy response to the success of others, boasting would be an unhealthy response to our own success. It's kind of neat the way he paired those. He says it does not boast. It is not proud, he says. Sorry, I keep forgetting. I'm not... It is not proud. So if boasting is the outward expression of an unhealthy relationship to our success, pride would be the internal one. In case you're tempted to think, that it's okay to be prideful as long as you don't boast. Just keep it to yourself. Both are poisonous. Both hurt. Boasting is public. It's outward. We read this in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul, earlier, writing to the Corinthians, said this. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? How often... It, it, we fall into two categories, right? Those of you that think you have absolutely nothing and somehow somebody has cheated you and the others who think you're golden, you're blessed. In fact, you deserve more than you're getting. And Paul says to those other ones, what, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. He goes on. He says, love does not dishonor others. This is an interesting word. I think the King James says, is not rude. But the idea here, and, and rude is actually better than dishonor, I think. Um, it's the same exact word. If you flip back a couple pages in your Bible to chapter 12, verse 23, he's talking about different body parts. And he says, some of the parts are right out front. Other parts are unpresentable, he says. Remember that? The word that for unpresentable is the exact same word he uses here. Love is not unpresentable. The idea is socially inappropriate to defy social norms, to be shocking, to be shameful. Oh, oh my goodness. Love doesn't do that to people. He goes on. He says, love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Uh, the, the word for this, easily angered, uh, we have a, an English word, paroxysm. It's, it's kind of, it, it's a medical term. It means a sudden attack, right? <gasps> oh, you had another sudden attack of stupid or whatever it is you have, right? Yeah, and, and the idea here is that uh, somebody who is not easily angered, um, they have a short fuse. They're on a low, low boil all the time. They're, they're like this far from boom, right? You know those people? Sorry. You married those people? Do not. <laughs> You're friends with somebody like that? You work with somebody like that? Just there's... In fact, you know what? You begin to resent the fact that everybody has to tiptoe around because they don't want to set them off. And yet, how do those people get to exert such power just because they could go off? James says this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and I think it's even slower to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It just doesn't do the same thing. Often when people are angry, they think they're righteous in their anger. James would say, yeah, probably not. If it's making you angry, there's something else at work. He goes on. He says, it keeps no records of wrong. By the way, if you don't have a short fuse and you would like to have a short fuse, this is how you do it. 
keep a record of wrongs. Just make note of everyone who just disappoints you, doesn't come through like they said. Just keep this, keep that. It won't take long before you refuse, you'll be ready to pop. It's funny how you know, people can't remember their password, but they have a photographic memory when it comes to however you did, whatever you did to hurt them. <laughs> and so they demand fairness selectively. They demand fairness. Thank goodness God does not demand fairness from us. The truth of the matter is when people keep a record of wrongs, it means that they're tracking what they think is owed to them. Why do we do that instead of tracking what we think we owe to others? You realize that a list like that can honor God. He goes on. He says, love does not delight in evil. Sometimes I think the best test of who we are, the best test of character, is to examine our delights. One writer said that delights are windows into our soul. Find what makes you smile. I know what makes you tick. You see, love doesn't delight in evil. Now, we could talk, except we're, we're trying to cover this passage but boy, we could talk about the things in our lives that we just sort of kind of delight and we kind of let happen. We take a little glee in it. Maybe it's even when something bad happens to someone else. <laughs> and the bottom line is, even though that might be natural, love doesn't react like that. In fact, the true, true test of love is what it rejoices in. It says that love rejoices in the truth. I, I, I found this interesting. It says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in, wouldn't you think it would be good? Not in evil, but in good. But he says, it doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. I would love to share with you what that means, but we don't have time. But may I suggest, if you're not doing anything today, that you take the Bible out and just look at those words again and begin to ask yourself, why does it say truth, not good? I have a hunch that whatever you come up with, you won't be far off. Then he goes on. He says, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I put it on the slide like this because actually I think thematically, it, it kind of looks like this. Uh, in, in sometimes when you're analyzing literature, we'll use patterns. This is an A-B pattern, A-B-A pattern. The idea is that the, the first and the last words, protecting and persevering, are actually pretty closely related. And the, the words trusts and hopes are actually pretty closely related. They don't mean vastly different things. Each one just brings a different nuance to the idea. Always trusts. Always protects. Interesting word here. It has the idea of covering, like with a cloak. Covering specifically something ugly. So, if you have a dog, you know that dogs throw up. <laughs> that's just what they do. In fact, you go to the vet, you're like, <gasps> they're like, yep, yeah, no, that's what they do. All different reasons, you know, right? So one of the first things that happens in our house that, that happens is we just cover it. Okay, to be honest, cover it till I can get home and clean it up. The rest, the rest of the family, 
<laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, the rest of them was like, right? They just totally grossed. I'm, I'm just, I mean, when, you, when, you, when you're me, you're used to dealing with yuck, okay? No problem. So some of you are like that too. It's, you, you, so we just cover it. Just cover it. Deal with it later. But sometimes the most merciful thing to do is, have you ever seen somebody who suddenly displays themselves as ugly? And if you respond quickly enough, you can kind of save, help them save face. Uh, hey, you know what? Um, how about, and you, that's protecting in this sense. Covers up stuff that's ugly as soon as it can. Now, we're not talking about denying. We're not talking about hiding evil. We're not, nothing like that. We're just talking about covering ugly. Kind of like when Noah got drunk. And some of the boys walking backwards like, like this. Why? Because they, they didn't want to see? Come on. No, they, wanted every, they didn't want their father to be shamed. They covered him. Love always. Well, this is how Peter says it. What did I do? I guess I didn't put it in there. So let me read this to you. First Peter 4.8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Not hiding it in the sense of, oh, it never happened. Just hiding the ugly. That's what it means to protect. He says, it always trusts. It believes for the best in someone. It believes for the best in someone. Now, this doesn't mean being gullible. It means believing for the, what is the best that can reasonably be expected for someone. Believing for the best in them. Not that every, all of a sudden everything is perfect. But you're, you're, you're looking for them to do the best. This is always trust, always hopes. And it's related. You see, love doesn't just always hope for the best in someone, but it, helps, it hopes that those who failed in the past won't fail this time. That's not naivete. They might. They could. Maybe they will. But love says, I'm hoping. I'm hoping they get it this time rather than protecting ourselves. He's never done it before. Never going to pull this off. She'll never. Love says, well, maybe, maybe. Let's hope. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Keeps dealing with this stuff. Keeps covering the blech. Keeps hoping for this. Keeps, just keeps, keeps it. Have you ever had someone in your life that just wears you out? Of course you have. We all do. And after all, you're like, oh, here we go again. But you see, love is why the again is there. They may never pull it together, but love says, we, but, but we don't know. God's at work. Let's see. Lastly, love is enduring, verses 8 through 13. He says, love never fails. Fails isn't really a great word here. Because we should ask, fails to do what? Love never fails to... What are... So the idea here is failure like, like when something stops working. Broken. No longer functions. Doesn't produce what it's supposed to produce. You ever have an old vacuum? 
I mean, it's making noise, making smoke. It's not getting anything up. It's failed. Love never does that. Love always keeps doing what it's supposed to do. Love never fails. It always, here's what, love always packs a punch. You never insert love into a situation that it doesn't have an impact. You can't dilute it. He says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We hinted at this a few weeks ago when we said that love is permanent. Gifts are temporary. All these gifts that the Corinthians and, and even us, that we might get all upset about and all excited about, and we think it's the key to everything. And Paul would say, I just want you to remember that these things are not going to be here forever. Really? And it, and it makes sense. Why would we need the gift of prophecy when God himself is with us? Why would we need tongues when he knows us, we know him, we understand? We don't, why would we need knowledge when, when the, the real thing is here? And that's what he's going to say in these next couple of examples. He goes on, he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. What goes on in church, it's just part. It's the best we can do. But it's just a portion of what the real thing looks like. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. Now, i got to tell you, there is a huge, uh, lots of stuff written about the debate of what this means. When completeness comes. And, and we're not going to... We're not going to take the time to rehearse all of those. Because I think for all of that talking, I think to any of us who just read the passage, I think the most obvious answer is also the most likely. Which is what? But when completeness comes, what, when does completeness come? Well, let's finish the passage and see, if, see what you think. He gives an illustration. The first illustration is this. Childhood. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. NIV is going to kill me. Simple. We all have experienced that. When you're a kid, you think like a kid. But later, you think like a grown-up. We've experienced that. Second illustration. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Now, we don't kind of understand this, because today we have really good mirrors. In this day, mirrors were still just like the ones in, in bathroom, ba truck stop bathrooms. <laughs> right? You know, those unbreakable ones? It's just metal, polished. I think that's me, right? I mean, that's pretty much the kind of mirrors they had. And so we tend to think, oh, what he's talking about is we see it kind of fuzzy now. We see it clearer later. That's what we think the application is. And I would have thought that too. Except he goes on. He says, then we will, uh, you know, first there's a reflection as in a mirror. Then we'll see face to face. He doesn't say more clearly. I think the actual application here is that one is just the image. The other is the real thing. Which would you rather do? Visit your grandchild or FaceTime them? <laughs> FaceTime is nice. Oh, wait, I don't know your grandkids. Maybe, maybe FaceTime is better. I got you. Okay, it's totally got that. Okay. But the idea is simple. Which do you want? An image of the thing or the real thing? Oh. Well, I mean, we already know the answer, right? 
Of course the real thing. For I know in part, but then I, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When is all this happened? When Jesus finishes the work that he's doing. When he comes as the Savior to redeem his bride. When he brings us all up to speed and, and we look the way he intends us to look. When he comes, all this other stuff. You know, we had a IBM Selectric typewriter. It was cool. It had the little ball thing, fan font, you know. It was really neat to watch it spin around. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> but as soon as you get something better, what do you do with that old thing? You put it out in the yard, free. Take this. Doorstop, please. Everybody understands the simple principle. I'm going to tell you that what Paul's trying to say to the Corinthians and to us, all this stuff that you think is so important, your position as the chairman of the such and such committee. How you're looked at in the men's group. How you all this all this all this stuff. It's going to be so irrelevant. You're going to be embarrassed you ever chased it. I'm here to speak. This is my best sermon ever. Where is everybody? They're all over there hanging out with Jesus. Doesn't anybody want to hear? No. So profoundly different when the completeness comes. And then he finishes up. He says, now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. I'd love to, we don't have time to talk about why faith, hope, and love are important to Paul. He uses them everywhere. And they interact in so many powerful ways. They all have a role to play. And here's the hard part. Will faith stop when we go to heaven? I don't think so. Will hope end when, when Jesus comes? Not, not really, at least. And, and yet, what he's saying is, even those aren't going to last, at least in the way that we know them. All three will abide to some extent, faith, hope, and love. But even amongst that triumvirate, one stands out. Love. Which is why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, as we close... He says, for Christ's love compels us. Wait, what does love do? It compels us. Is that what you feel this morning? Do you feel compelled? Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Do you notice how love is tied directly back to the gospel, which takes us right back to the cross? And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. What does love do? Well, when you experience this kind of love, it compels you to live differently. We're going to close in a few minutes. But if love compels us to live differently, what is going to change for you? There's at least three responses today. 
First of all, if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior and you keep hearing about the fact that he died for you and he offers eternal life as a free gift and you've been kind of just sitting listening, you can't really begin to understand his love until you've experienced it yourself. So maybe today it's time for you to put your faith in Christ. Or maybe you're here and you consider yourself a Christian. But as we listen to this, you've become convicted that for the most part, you only live for you. What's important is what you get or what you don't get. Even when you're nice to others, you're angling it to make sure that it benefits you And now we realize that when we live like that, we're not experiencing love at all. Maybe today you need to decide, it is time for me to live without being self-centered, but live for him. There's one other option. That's for those of you who are believers and you love the Lord and you serve others, you're involved someplace. By the way, I do want to point out something. This passage that we think that we often think it's all about romantic love, you realize it's actually addressed to a church. The application of all that we've said today is for church. Here. You understand, I love Jesus, I just don't like people. That's foul on the field. You can't do that. That's for here. This kind of love that we're talking about, that's for here. For that person sitting at the other end of the aisle that you don't even know who they are. It's for here. So you've been serving because you think it's a good thing to do. Makes you feel good. I feel most satisfied. I understand. Yay. And as we've been listening, you realize... I'm getting the feeling that sometimes even though when I'm doing the right thing, I'm not doing it for the right reason. Nobody could fault me. I mean, I'm doing the right thing. That's good. But Lord, I I don't want to be doing the right thing, but then not for the right reason. I need to be changed on the inside. I don't want to just be doing the right thing. I want to do it for the right reason, which is what? For love. For, For you, not me. And it means that I'm going to put up with provocation. And I'm going to hold my tongue. And I'm going to keep protecting ugly. And I'm going to keep hoping for the best. Not because I'm a saint, but because that's what Jesus would do. A little bit of music. Why don't you just play a little bit before we close? Um, Why don't you take a moment? You do the business with God that you need to do. Sometimes when we make a decision, we need to take action. People become citizens of our country. They raise the right hand. What does that have to do with anything? It marks the occasion as unique. We offer this moment for you to actually act along with your decision. 
So if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, and you say, I never realized Jesus died for me, but I believe that he did. If you've made that decision today, I'm going to invite you to come on up here, have a seat. Step forward, talk to God. Uh, we can pray together. Take action on the decision. Or maybe you've spent enough of your life just taking care of you. And now reflecting on what Jesus did for us, it's time that we live for him. And if you are ready to say, I need to stop living just for myself. Today's the first day when I try to figure out what it means to live for him, loving others. If that's the decision you're making today. Come right up front. Come on up here, have a seat. Set this day and this moment apart as special. Make the decision that will change the direction of your life. We'll wait. Or maybe, maybe you are known for doing right things. You've been serving. You've been helping. But now we become convicted that maybe far too often we do all the good things we do for the wrong reason. We want to be seen. We want to be known as this caring person, this helpful person. We want, it's all impression management. But if now, when we look at what love really looks like, it pierces our heart. Oh, Jesus, I haven't been serving you for the reasons that you serve me. And so perhaps you need to come forward today. You need to come clean. There's some things that I got to get straightened out because I need to do the right thing for the right reason. Lord Jesus, I need your help. We'll give you just a minute if you want to come take care of business with Jesus. So there is no scorecard about who steps forward, but there is a scorecard. If you and I leave here today unchanged in some way, it's hard to imagine that the Spirit of God is, is intending that. And so, is it clear in your mind yet what it is that love compels you to do? Because He died for us. All are dead. And those who now live ought to live for Him. You make that decision. Make today the first day of addressing what the Spirit of God is prodding you, compelling you to change. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.